This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to The Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and what they have in common. I was going to do a four-part episode on serial killers that had a building or room set aside to torture and kill people, but the David Parker Ray episode kind of threw everything in disarray. So um, now it is a five-part episode, and in this one, I will be talking about Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. The time span of the crimes involving Leonard Lake and Charles Ng was from 1983 to 1985. The number of verified deaths is 12. The number of possible deaths is up to 25. Lake was 40 years old when he was caught, and Ng was 25 years old when they were caught. Their murder lab was a cabin off of Blue Mountain Road in Wilseyville, California. So first, I'll talk about Leonard Lake and give you a little bit of background on him. As a child, Leonard Lake killed mice by dissolving them in acid. His parents had a rough time and separated when he was about six. Then his mom went and took his two sisters and brother to go be with the dad to try to make another go of it. And they left him with his grandparents. So unsurprisingly, this was a traumatic event for him. So he felt rejected by his family. And even though they wound up coming back shortly after and said, hey, you can come live with us again. He was like, "Mm, no, I think I'm good. I'm going to stay with my grandparents because they apparently want me. But he did stay in close contact with his, the rest of his family. A fascination of photos of nude women began with him as a child. Supposedly, his mom encouraged him to appreciate nudity and to take pics, even of his sisters and cousins. Now, in a couple sources, they say it was his grandma that encouraged it. But it seems like the majority says it was his mom that did it. So he apparently also sexually abused his sisters. His brother Donald, which I will do another episode on siblings that have also have uh, sociopathic or psychotic tendencies but don't become serial killers because it is interesting his brother Donald also had a whole bunch of issues and stuff so we'll get into that later but his brother Donald actually sexually abused would try to sexually abuse the sisters so Leonard would say well you know what I'll protect you from Donald but you got to do some stuff for me so I guess the way that he would abuse them was gentler or more manipulative than the way Donald would abuse them. So I guess they preferred that, you know, because apparently someone was going to be doing it. So the poor girls went with the path of least resistance, I guess. Yeah, not a great, uh, not a great atmosphere for anybody. When he was older, he joined the Marines. He became a survivalist. He was obsessed with the idea of an impending nuclear holocaust. He believed he was the ultimate victim of women. Here are some popular quotes of Leonard Lake's. God meant women for cooking, cleaning house, and sex. When they are not in use, they should be locked up. If you love something, let it go. If it doesn't come back, hunt it down and kill it. All I want is an off-the-shelf sex partner. I want to be able to use a woman whenever and however I want. And when I'm bored or tired, I simply want to put her away. He is your classic gentleman. So unsurprisingly, his favorite book was The Collector by John Fowles. If you're not familiar, it's about a butterfly collector who carried out his fantasy of capturing and enslaving a young woman named Miranda. It also inspired other serial killers like Christopher Wilder and Robert Burdella. There is a Wikipedia page on it. 
just on the fact that this book inspired several serial killers. I will actually uh, do an episode on it later, and I do feel badly for John Fowles because I wouldn't think any authors really expect anyone to start killing people or use it as inspiration for their nefarious deeds. So I do feel kind of bad for him. I have not read the book yet. Uh, it does seem interesting. So, uh, I, of course, when I do the episode, I will read the book and, you know, we'll get in more into it. But uh, again, I'm not saying that reading the book caused him to do these things because these people will find ways to do things anyway and find other things to inspire them to do things. Now, a little bit more into Leonard's view of women. This is a quote from Die For Me from Lake. But for anyone that is interested, anyone who needs my justification and my rationalizations as to why I would want to imprison and, in fact, enslave a woman, they have only to look closely at me. I am a realist. I am 38 years old, a bit chubby, not much hair and losing what I have, not particularly attracting to women. All of tr the traditional magnets, the money, position, power, I don't have. And yet, I'm still very sexually active, and I'm still very much attracted to a particular type of woman who, almost by definition, is totally uninterested in me. Dirty. Old man. Pervert. So his fascination with taking pictures of women, of course, continued throughout his life. He kept putting out ads to get women to come so he could take pictures of them, and he would harass women that he knew into taking pics. Like, even women he just met, he would try to convince them to pose for him. He was married at one point and divorced because his way of doing things did not interest the wife. He eventually lived on a hippie commune and met Clarilyn Balaz, or Cricket. She was perfect for him because she loved being in the pornographic videos that he made. And in 1981, they married. So she was totally into all the shit that he was into. Much like David Parker Ray and Cindy Hendy, they began making pornographic videos to sell for people. Their clients would actually provide their name and say the kind of thing that they wanted, and Cricket would use the customer's first name in the tapes while she acted out their sexual fantasies. Lake scripted, directed, and filmed these. Now, quick note on the hippie commune. A lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but it has been a thing where people call him a hippie, but I don't know that that actually fits. Mostly because he's more of a survivalist. So when he lived on the commune, it wasn't like he was interacting with people and it was all about peace, love, and let's all hang out. He was very much stuck to himself. And he was into guns. He was constantly challenging the rules and people, you know, people didn't necessarily like him because he kind of just flipped off everybody, <laughs> you know, by his actions. And he would fight with people and threaten them. You know, and they're hippies, so they don't really want to fight. And so they would kind of, they, you know, a lot of it le was left unchallenged. But I think the reason that he was attracted to the hippie commune is because he could take advantage of that. You know, and he could go in there and do what he wanted and he wasn't worried about people challenging what he was doing. Although I think eventually that relationship fell apart because of that. So when people call him a hippie, eh, I would say it's just that he happened to live amongst hippies and take advantage of the hippies. But he is truly, the, I think, the best word is survivalist. Now we will talk about Charles Cheetah Ng, and his middle name is C-H-I-T-A-T. -T. It's pronounced Cheetah. At this point in the story is when him and Lake meet. Ng loved guns, and they met through a magazine ad in 1981. Though it's interesting, pretty much everything says that they met through a magazine ad. One source said they were both visiting San Francisco's red light district when they met. 
And I don't know where that detail came from. I did not see that anywhere else except that one source. So the general consensus is they met through a magazine ad in 1981 in a gun magazine. Ng was born to a wealthy family in Hong Kong, was constantly beat by his dad, and he became a bully and was expelled. Like Lake, he was separated from his main family, but in a different way. His dad thought he might do better if he went someplace else to do his studies. So he had an uncle in England and his sister was already living there. So he went there for a while, but it became obvious he wasn't welcome, so he came home. He wound up living with an aunt in California and then joined the Marines, forging his documents. Because remember, he was from Hong Kong, and uh, so he forged his documents, was able to get into the Marines. He was addicted to stealing, obsessed with martial arts, and setting fires. He wound up getting caught stealing guns from the Marines and did time. He didn't like drinking, smoking, drugs, and hanging out in bars. But I think the addiction to stealing, the obsession with martial arts and setting fires, I think that balances it out as far as being fun. So Ng and Lake obviously hit it off, and Ng stayed with Lake and Cricket until there was a raid on the house. Weapons were found, and Ng did time. Lake went on the run, and Cricket decided, you know, I can't live life on the run, so they wound up divorcing in 1982, but they still stayed friends with benefits. Now, in the meantime, this whole time, Lake had a practice of stealing identities. That was his big thing. So he actually killed his own brother and stole his identity. Um, the best man, Charles Gunner, in his wedding, he stole his identity and killed him. So that will be another episode is I'll cover serial killers that had fraudulent activity. So he will definitely be covered in that. Getting back to The Collector, as I had stated earlier, it was one of Leonard Lake's favorite books. And the woman that had been kidnapped in the book was named Miranda. So he introduced the idea to Ng, and Ng was all on board. They both wanted to capture women and use them for sex and cleaning. Um, basically like a much darker version of Frank's bang maid on It's Always Sunny. They made plans to build a bunker and even mentioned it to people in casual conversation. <laughs> One person said that Ng told him, quote, it was going to have a torture room in it and he was going to have a video cameras. I imagine that the reason they felt comfortable with telling random people this is a lot of times they were talking to, you know, army buddies, well, military buddies, and, you know, even just, I don't think that they thought people would take them seriously. So they figured it was safe to just say this stuff and, you know, or maybe they just didn't give a shit. It's hard to tell. So Lake made a few, Lake seemed to be the driving force behind it. And he was the one who actually tried building it. He came up with a few attempts on the project. And here's a quote about something he learned from it. The past two months saw Miranda come to fruit. That taught me more. The perfect woman is one who is totally controlled, a woman who does exactly what she is told and nothing else. There are no sexual problems with a totally submissive woman. There are no frustrations. There is only pleasure and contentment. I've observed, I believe, one woman who found this not only acceptable, but even desirable. I doubt this will be the norm, and in this case, the woman's low mentality probably affected the discovery. A whore, druggy, and a fool. Still, I enjoyed using her, and seemingly she enjoyed the use. I do hope I do better next time, however. Lake hired local teens to help with digging the bunker, but then he had to relocate due to doubts about the place he had chosen. It turns out Cricket had a cabin off Blue Mountain Road in Willsieville, California, and in 1984, with the help from a friend and another youth, Lake worked on making the actual bunker. 
Once it was completed, he even rented an apartment in San Francisco to hunt for victims. Though it seems he found the women in other ways. I didn't see anything where he specifically said that using that apartment, he was able to locate victims. So we'll get into the victims here in a, in a minute. On June 2nd, 1985, Ng was spotted stealing a vice from South City Lumber Hardware Store, and he ran after putting it in Lake's trunk. Lake tried to pay for it, but the cops were called, and when they looked at his driver's license, they noticed that it said he was 26, but he was obviously older. Now, keep in mind, he was 40 at the time. They also discovered the license plates were for a different vehicle. They found a gun with a silencer in the trunk. He had no license for it, and he was arrested. Once at the station, he asked for a pen, paper, and a glass of water. He wrote a note to Cricket and swallowed a cyanide pill he had kept sewn into his clothes. He told them who he was, and he mentioned Ng, went into convulsions, and died four days later, never regaining consciousness. So I found three different versions of this note. One version says, I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Please tell Mama, Fern, and Patty I'm sorry. Another version. I love you. I figure your freedom is better than all else. Tell Fern I'm sorry. Mom, Patty, and all. I'm sorry for all the trouble. In the book Die For Me, there's a picture of the note, and this is what it says. Dear Lynn, I love you. I forgive you. Freedom is better than all else. Tell Fern I'm sorry. Mom, Patty, and all. I'm sorry for all the trouble. Love, Leonard. So I'm assuming since it's a picture, I'm guessing that's the whole thing. I just, one of the things that I find so fascinating in this is when you have a letter that someone wrote, but you still find different versions of it. And there's only said that there's one letter. So they're all pretty similar. They all say, I love you. There's a version of forgive me. Although one says, please forgive me. The other says, I'm sorry. And then the other one says, I forgive you, actually. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting how one little tiny note that's barely like three sentences long can be changed in different ways. And they, all of them do mention Mama, Fern, and Patty. So I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to see how it's like the telephone game. Things get twisted around. But I guess the bottom line is they all hit the same notes. And I guess that's a part that's important. It's not all of the words that are in there is it gets the message across. As far as the cyanide pills, most of the sources say that they were kept in the lapel of his shirt or pinned inside of his shirt collar or sewn into the shirt collar. One said it was in his belt. And again, I find it interesting when you find sources that all have the same thing and then just one off in, you know, right field. I don't know where they get that. So the general consensus is it was in his shirt collar. Again, I guess it doesn't necessarily matter because the point is he had a cyanide pill and he took it. But details are interesting to me. I don't know. So eventually the cops found the ranch and found the truck belonging to Scott Stapley, who was missing, and a Honda owned by Lonnie Bonds, who was also missing. They noticed a human foot poking through the earth, and they found 40 pounds of burned and smashed human bone fragments for at least a dozen bodies. They found the scattered teeth of Lonnie Bond Jr., a two-year-old, the remains of Kathy Allen, and at least 19 other people in shallow graves. We'll get more into Kathy Allen in a moment. They found the remains of eight people in unmarked graves. Scott Stapley and Lonnie Bond's bodies were found stuffed in sleeping bags and buried. They found a hand-drawn map, which led to two buried five-gallon pails. 
They contained envelopes with names and victims' IDs, which suggested 25 people. Lake's handwritten journals for 83 and 84 were there, one of them saying very clearly, The Diary of Leonard Lake, 1984. There were 100 pages in that specific journal. There were two videotapes showing torture of two victims, and that include Ing in the videos. So we'll get more into those videos in a moment. Now, the bunker itself, the main room was a combination tool shed and workshop with construction tools and shovels, picks, a wheelbarrow, and that kind of thing. There was a wall with pictures of half-naked women, though the, the women, I think it was like 21 women, and they did discover, I think all of those women were alive and well. So that's good. They realized that unlike the TARDIS, it was smaller on the inside than it seemed it should be. They saw piano hinges on a plywood raw wall and realized there was a hidden door behind some shelves. They found them inside, and they were bent as if someone on the other side had pushed or pounded on the concealed door. It led through a narrow passageway to a rectangular chamber. It had a bed, a table with a lamp, a desk, a dresser, shelves for food storage, some clothing, and various other supplies. And, of course, a copy of the collector. At one end, a plywood partition divided the space, making a third tiny room, no more than three and a half feet wide by six and a half feet long. It had a narrow platform about two feet wide with a foam rubber pad probably for a bed. A five-gallon plastic bucket with a roll of toilet paper sat in a corner. It was soundproofed. The room, not the toilet. A mirror had been inserted into the wooden wall between the living room and the tiny cell, providing a one-way view into the cramped cubicle. So again, we see where, like, um, Fred West liked to view his victims, even H.H. Holmes liked to view his victims. It's interesting to see that's, that's a big part of it for them, is to be able to watch the discomfort they are providing their victims. A typed sheet of paper was on the wall, one that would make David Parker Ray smile in his toy box. A list of rules. I must always be ready to service my master. I must be clean, brushed, and made up with my cell neat. I must never speak unless spoken to. Unless in bed, I must never look my master in the eye, but must keep my eyes downcast. I must never show my disrespect, either verbally or silent. I must never cross my arms or legs in front of my body or clench my fists, and unless eating, must always keep my lips parted. I must be obedient completely and in all things. I must obey immediately and without question or comment. I must always be quiet when locked in my cell. I must remember and obey any additional rules told to me. I must understand that any disobedience, any pain, trouble, or annoyance caused by me to my master will be grounds for punishment. I believe David Parker Ray had 18 rules, so six isn't too bad. What strikes me is, the first thing is, in the four, fourth rule, he spells a word without wrong. So immediately, if he would have captured me, he would not have liked me because I would have spell-checked this document and given him shit about it. The other thing that I think of is when they come up with all these rules and they expect you to stick to it, it's extra fucked up because when you're in a stressful situation, it, I mean, I guess it depends on the person, obviously, but I would think you'd be a little flustered and it would be hard to keep things straight, especially because they're probably not feeding you very much and everything's all crazy. So... It blows my mind that they expect you to be able to pay attention, especially when he says at the end, I must remember and obey any additional rules told to me. I mean, I don't know, maybe it would be easier because what else do you have to focus on? And the, if they torture you or beat you, that's motivation to remember. You know, I mean, I guess this stuff isn't that hard. 
But, I mean, keeping the, the shit about keeping your lips parted? What the fuck? In the videos, they found women in chains, snapshots of dead victims moments before their burial, and bags of human bones that had been boiled down into soup. There were two videotapes, one labeled M, and the other M ladies, Kathy slash Brenda. I'm going to read a section from the book Serial Killers by Joel Norris. The scratchy video depicts a young white woman with her hands cupped behind her sitting in a chair in the living room of the mountain cabin. A voice off camera tells her, Mike owes us, and unfortunately, he can't pay. We're going to give you a choice, Kathy. It's probably the last choice we're going to give you. You can go along with us. You're going to co cooperate. And in approximately 30 days, if you want a date, you can write in your calendar the 15th of May. We will either drug you, blindfold you, or in some way or other, make sure you don't know where you are and where you're going, and take you back to the city and let you go. And what you say at that time, I don't care. My name you don't know. His name is Charlie, but screw it. By then, hopefully, Mike will have disappeared gracefully. If you don't cooperate with us, we'll probably put a round through your head and take you out and bury you someplace. No witnesses. You will give us information on Mike. Basically, Mike will move off on the horizon. While you're here, you'll wash for us, you'll clean for us, you'll fuck for us. That's your choice in a nutshell. It's not much of a choice unless you have a death wish. You'll probably think worse things in the next few weeks. The woman named Kathy Allen undresses and goes to shower with the Asian male. The tape cuts to a bedroom and shows a black-haired man on a bed with the woman sitting on his back. There is another cut in the tape, and the black-bearded man appears, again in the bedroom with Kathy Allen, indicating that it is four days later and that he's upset with her for bending the hasps on a lock in her cell. She is strapped to the bed while he threatens her and takes photos of her naked body. He tells her that they killed Mike and buried him. It would soon be her turn to join him. There are three videotape sessions of Kathy. The first one where they're talking to her about Mike while she's handcuffed in a chair. The second one, she's wearing only pantyhose with a rip in the crotch, giving Inga back massage. And the last shows Lake snapping pictures of her while she is in different lingerie. In the book that I just read from, it did say she was naked. But in another source, my main source, which I realize, I apologize, I did not mention until now, is Die For Me by Don Lassiter. So in the third video, while he's taking pictures of her, her wrists are handcuffs and her ankles are bound. Later, he removed the handcuffs, but he left the leather straps tying her ankles. He's talking to her like she's a consensual model and says things like, can you turn your head? Yeah, that's it. Just lay on the bed if you want. I really want you, or expect you as a matter of fact, to do them. And, uh, you haven't. When she asks what she hasn't done, he says, I'm referring to, uh, me telling you not to beat on the doors and make noise. As you probably have noticed, at least hopefully, you've noticed that I'm doing a version of the comic book guy from The Simpsons. Because I was, as I was reading the dialogue, he totally sounds like the comic book guy with his ums and uhs and actuallys. And then plus with his description as being chubby and balding and not great with women. I mean, he basically sounds like the comic book guy. The video shows Lake and Ing participating in activities with the women. Ing did tell one of his cellmates that while Lake was having his way with Kathy, he took a break and make some rice, made some rice to eat. Which I think adds a dimension to the picture where it just shows how casual it was for him. 
is, oh, you know, I'm just uh, going to cut off this woman's clothes and shower with her and do vile things to her. Oh, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. I think I'm going to have some rice. I don't know. I might go back in and do some more torture. Maybe do some raping. I don't know. Maybe have some more rice. It's just kind of another thing on his list of things that he's doing that day. They came to discover that Kathy on the video was Kathleen Allen, who was 18, and her boyfriend was Mike Carroll, 23. It turns out Mike had served time in Leavenworth at the same time as Ing, so that's how they knew each other. She got a call at work at the Safeway store. She told her supervisor she needed time off to care for her boyfriend that had a gunshot wound. She was seen getting into a car with a white guy about 40 years old. Later, she called a friend and said she was with a guy that was, quote, kind of weird. And he wanted to take pictures of her. So through and through, he's always wanting to get those pics. She told her friend she'd call later. Instead, she was imprisoned for several days and nights and killed. Her manager later received a typed letter with what appeared to be her signature asking to forward her locker contents and W-2 to a P.O. box in Wilseyville. She said her and Mike had gotten new jobs. So there again shows Lake's uh, fraudulent activity and experience with um, collecting information from his victims. Here's another excerpt from Serial Killers by Joel Norris about the section of the video Brenda was in. Now the tape cuts to a second female named Brenda O'Connor. She, like Kathy Allen, is sitting fully clothed in a chair with her hands cuffed behind her back. Standing beside her, holding a knife in his hand, is an Asian male named Charles Ng. He uses the knife point to cut Brenda's shirt off and then slowly cut her brassiere in two. In a voiceover, the police sergeant hears Leonard Lake giving her the same instructions he gave Kathy Allen. If you don't do what we tell you, we will tie you to the bed, rape you, shoot you in the head, and take you out and bury you. Lake informs Brenda that he has taken her baby and placed it with a family in Fresno, and even though Brenda becomes hysterical and pleads with Lake and Ing for the return of her baby, the two of them only repeat their original instructions. Brenda O'Connor was married to Lonnie Bond Sr., age 27, and they had a son, Lonnie Bond Jr., who was two years old. I did not find the age of Brenda, so I'm assuming that she was probably around that same age. I don't know. They were Lake's neighbors. That is how he got to know them. In the video, he goes on to explain why he took Brenda. You guys have been such assholes, Brenda. You know, Lonnie hasn't been all that bad. I'll give you that, except of his shooting. But you've been an asshole like I can't believe. You've been so damn rude, and for no reason that I can figure. Then later in the conversation, Ng cuts her shirt off, and Lake says to him, You're so crude, Charlie. I actually liked that shirt. Again, it just strikes me how casual this whole thing is for them, and while they are tearing apart this woman's world, he's complaining because he liked her shirt. It is also in this video that there is an infamous Charles Ng quote, you can cry and stuff like the rest of them, but it won't do you no good. We're pretty <laughs> cold-hearted, so to speak. Then she proceeds to get dizzy and pale. They give her ice water, but then Lake starts fondling her breasts. So I think this is also an interesting note that they're t kind of taking care of her, 
But I think it's really just because they don't really care that she's uncomfortable. It's more that they want her to be able to be a participant in what they're doing, whether she's active or not. If she's passed out, it's not quite the same. She has to be present and ready for them to do things to her. So if she passes out, it's going to delay things for them. So they give her ice water. He's funneling her breasts and he starts to compare her to Kathy. He says Brenda's a little better and adds, she just had a baby. She looks okay. Fuck you, Leonard Lake. Fuck you. So then once she starts feeling a little better, they have her undress and shower. That's another common theme if you haven't noticed so far. They always have their women shower. One of the other things the cops discovered when they found the ranch is that the video equipment came from the Dubs family, whose bodies were found on the property. Harvey Dubs, a San Francisco photographer, his wife, and their infant son. Harvey was 30, Deborah was 33, and their son Sean was one. They were selling their video equipment, and they had put out an ad. And Leonard Lake res- and Ng responded to that ad, and they decided, well, there's a, a woman there, so we're just going to take them all, kill off the husband and son, and then use the woman. One of the videos apparently shows Deborah being raped and tortured as well. Ng wound up running off to Canada, and then he was caught. He was able to stretch it out. So keep in mind, they were caught in 1985. Ng was able to stretch out his sentencing and trial until 1991. Then he was brought back to the States, and in 1999, he was finally convicted and sentenced to death. He is still alive in San Quentin. As for Cricket, it was seen in videos that she knew about the Miranda Project and was caught on video joking with Leonard Lake about it, where they're just hanging out in bed, and they're like talking about what women they'd get to put in the bunker and stuff like that. She cooperated and received immunity. They could not find any evidence that she was directly related to the what was going on. Although there was a point when they first found out about the ranch and they since she owned it, they notified her while well, her and Lake's mom went there before the cops got there and got rid of some stuff. So a little surprised she didn't get into more trouble for that. But again, she cooperated and they couldn't find any proof that she directly was involved with the kidnapping. So she was free. A common thing to wonder about people who kill in pairs is would they have killed separately or did they goad each other on and that's what led them to killing? As I stated, Lake had a side enterprise of killing people to steal their identities. So it's pretty clear Lake was going to be doing what he was doing, whether he had someone else. And I think since he was initiating the bunker plans, he was going to have that bunker whether Ng was there or not. I think it was just nice to have Ng there and have a buddy there on the ride. And it was helpful to have someone else there to keep, you know, help him do things. Uh, but I think Lake was going to be Lake no matter what. Ng, on the other hand, I don't know if he would have necessarily killed people without Lake. He claims throughout his trial that he never killed anyone. He claimed it was always Lake that did the killing and did the actual abducting. And maybe he took part in some of the rape and stuff. He never actually abducted or killed. Although in the trial, apparently he had told someone that he killed the baby, the Dubs' baby, and that he killed Deborah Dubs. But on trial, he said he never said those things. So the way that it went, just real fast, is did you ever tell Maurice LaBerge that Leonard killed Harvey Dubs? Ing. Right. And that you killed Deborah and Sean Dubs? No. Did you tell Maurice LaBarge that it was hard to kill the baby, but the whole was a piece of cake? No. Did you tell Maurice LaBarge that you didn't care about killing Deborah Dubs, but killing the baby was strange? 
Lake told you it would be good training experience, like the Nazi SS when they were given a puppy at the beginning of their training and forced to kill the puppy when they graduated? No. Did you tell Maurice LaBarge? At first, I felt funny about wasting the baby, but then I figured it was better that way than having no parents? No. So basically the whole conversation goes on like that, and where the lawyer is asking him about direct quotes that Maurice said that Ng had said, and then constantly saying, no, I didn't say that. No, I didn't say that. The only things that he would say that he did say is that Lake did everything. I would not be surprised if Ng did have something to do with the killing. In the videos, he's obviously enjoying torching the women. And the things that he's saying in the things that are said in those quotes, I think that he probably did say. But I don't know if he would have carried it to that level without Lake. He obviously had a problem with stealing and getting into trouble that way. He was okay with rape. And there were witnesses seeing him with Lake taking big bundles out of the Dubs' home that could have been people. So I think he did help more than he let on. And I think he enjoyed it more than he let on. I just don't know if without Lake, he would have done those things on his own. I think that Lake kind of gave him that opportunity. And so he just went with it and relished in it. And maybe if someone else would have come along that gave him that opportunity, he took he would have taken it. But I don't know if he would have taken that on his own. It's possible that eventually he would have escalated to that. But it just seems to me like he was kind of on board for the ride and not necessarily the one initiating things. Another thing I think that is interesting is the fact that Lake was always getting laid. Constantly throughout the years, he was going back to cricket. He would constantly mention booty calls in his journals. So he would just hook up with these random women. He'd hook up with continue the same women over and over. He was always getting laid. So that's what's crazy to me is that he obviously didn't have problems getting laid. So it's interesting that to him, as he said... He needs to have someone submissive. He wants to have a, a bang maid. He wants someone who's going to stay out of his way and only be there when he wants them to be there and do what he wants them to do and he wants them to shut up. That's obviously his ultimate satisfaction. So it's it's interesting to note that he can have meaningful relationships or he can have these more personal relationships, but that's not what he really wants. And that's not what truly gets him off. It is having a submissive partner that is a slave. In in an upcoming episode, I'm actually going to go through all of the people I talked about in this five-part Murder Lab series, and I'm going to compare things that they had in common, things that they didn't, and uh, talk about that a little bit, because I think that's another, that's, because that's what intrigued me about doing the podcast this way, is to compare serial killers and to see what makes them similar, what makes them different, and delve into that. In the next episode, it's going to be a fun size episode, where I talk about serial killers in movies and how they're depicted in movies and stuff, and we'll keep it lighter. Because these last two episodes have been pretty heavy, especially the David Parker Ray one. I think that messed us all up. So we'll have a fun size one, and then I'll jump into the comparative episode. And then after that, I'm going to start a series on families that kill together, which includes, right now I'm studying Gordon Stewart Northcott, and we'll also do Joseph Callinger. So those are a couple of people that we'll cover. And then there'll be a few more, of course. It'll probably be probably another four or five part series. So stay tuned. Now we'll go over the nicknames. I haven't done the nicknames yet. One of the neighbors of the commune called Leonard Lake, the most pleasant, unpleasant man I have ever known. They were known together as the Video Confession Killers. Again, the books that I referred to, I apologize, I didn't go over them clearer. I didn't go over them more clearly at the beginning, is Die For Me by Don Lasseter. And Serial Killers by Joel Norris. Again, I will put that up on the website 
all of my references. There are others that I cross-reference with that I'll put up there for your reference. You can get more information at murderlabmedia.com. The episodes are available on Apple iTunes and Google Play. And you can get the RSS feed at murderlabmedia.com. Thank you for entering the lab.